Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. So our next session, all tracks are combined. Everybody's back in this room. Hopefully we will have everybody come back in. Um, but we have our first set of speakers. And so we are actually going to have Dr. Scott Walter back again from Hartford, Connecticut, affiliated with Hartford Hospital, and Dr. David Reichstein, who is here from Tennessee Retina, and Dr. Peter Hovland, who is here from Colorado Retina. So thank you guys for being back here. I'm going to let you guys get into your presentation, which, by the way, is um, the end of this presentation, I guess, is sponsored by Aura Biosciences. So we're grateful for them for their contribution. And um, keep those question cards going and bring them, whoever's in here, Lauren, uh, run those questions up to me so that I can make sure that we can pose those to these guys at the end. Okay, here we go. Um, this is going to overlap a bit with what Dr. Reichstein's last talk was about. Um, this, is my, this is my take on some of these uh, issues that occur after you've been treated, the radiation side effects. And um, anyway, thanks again for being here. Appreciate the opportunity to address you guys and uh, We'll let you know we get a lot out of this. Uh, I, know, I hope you guys are too. Let's see. There we go. So this is uh, some data showing that uh, the trends in the U.S. over the last number of decades. We used to remove a lot of eyes, and uh, now we don't remove as many. Uh, radiation allows you to conserve your eye and your vision potentially. Um, so radiation is, you know, probably 90% of patients are being treated with radiation. I'm, how do I advance? Hello? Seems to be going slow here. Okay, so we sometimes call radiation treatment conservative therapy. That means you get to keep your eye um, and preserve your vision, as well as the cosmetic effect of, of keeping your eye. Um, proton therapy, we just talked about earlier. Um, less com it's used less commonly, but plaque brachytherapy as well can cause similar damage, what we call radiation retinopathy or uh, radiation causing other effects besides effects on the retina. It, it can damage the normal eye structures, uh, and um, the higher the dose of radiation, the more likely it is it will cause the damage. <clears throat> um, it also depends on the, so the size of the tumor is... Uh, if you have a larger tumor, you're going to get a larger dose. It also depends on the location, as we see. The closer to the nerve or macula, the more likely this is to affect your vision. Um, brachytherapy we talked about. This is my picture, just like Dr. Walker had the plaque there behind the tumor. We can see the in the black and white on the right there, the, there is a plaque um, uh, behind a tumor. You can see a little detached retina beneath it. But it, we, we like to use ultrasound, and, and the difference between, uh, or, or to guide it, uh, the difference between this and the protons is that the radiation effect is coming straight out of that plaque. 
the highest dose is hitting the tumor, and uh, it radi the, uh, the term dosimetry refers to the, resp the dose fall off as it goes away. This is working really in a delayed fashion, I'm sorry. Throwing me off. Um, <clears throat> I'll just say next slide. Uh, so uh, in any event, uh, this the color drawing shows how the blast zone radiates away from the tumor. And as I, the further away from the tumor, the smaller the dose to the tissue. And I, I think that great uh, eye plaque uh, uh, diagram that Dr. Walker showed shows we, we're really paying a lot of attention to what structures are involved. But we really don't have a lot of choice. We've got to treat that tumor. Um, next slide, please. So after treatment with radiation, again, uh, I'm repeating points that have been said earlier, but I get it all the time. There's no radiation left in your body after that. I, I, I've been asked half a dozen times, people say, I've got cavities in my teeth Is it because there's still radiation, and the answer is no. Um, uh, but it, we, we do think that uh, the damage to the tumor is instant. It goes in there, destroys the DNA, uh, in the case of plaques, and that the tumor is no longer able to grow, or more importantly, not able to metastasize. And that's what we call local control, meaning in the eye. Um, it may take months to see the tumor respond to the treatment. Next slide. And we saw the importance for follow-up. The damage to the local tissues might show up sooner, but typically it takes a while. And more often than not, it's over a year before the radiation damage will show up in the healthy tissues. <clears throat> so there's a, various ways to treat radiation side effects. Medically, we could use eye drops. Sometimes steroids are enough to help uh, alleviate some of the issues. But as we've gone in, into it, we understand there's a role for in eye injections. How many of you guys are getting eye injections right now? About half of you, it looks like. So it's, it, it's, uh, this, is the, this is how you preserve your not only your vision, but really the health of the eye. Um, Avastin, Lucentis, Ilea are the names of some of the drugs that can be used. There's probably other drugs that are coming out in the near future as well. I also find that a separate class of medication called, you know, steroids that are anti-inflammatory medications are useful. Uh, Canalog, Triessence, Ozerdex are names of some of the drugs that we've used. Uh, and uh, you might find that you get switched from one drug to the other. Additionally, laser, we've talked about this. Laser can be used to treat radiation side effects. We talked about argon laser, diode laser. We, I don't think we brought a PDT laser. That's typically not used very often for treatment of radiation side effects, sometimes to avoid. I'm not going to go to PDT right now. I should have not put that in there, sorry. A treatment of radiation side effects, cataract surgery we talked about. I, I, we, I think it's a generally accepted. It's safe to do cataract surgery after you've had radiation. Vitrectomy, that's the kind of surgery that... Uh, Vitreoretinal surgeons like ourselves will do to go in to clean out blood, for example. Um, and then enucleation is still sometimes needed, even after uh, a long course of treatment. Sometimes that's the right treatment. Now, I want to clarify one thing. It sounded like maybe I came off being an advocate for primary enucleation uh, earlier in the day, and I'm definitely not. I, I think uh, there's, as an ophthalmologist, as an eye doctor, I understand the importance of vision. And so I, I, I brought it up in the context to say that we may need to fight for our rights to continue to provide these advanced treatments because vision is extremely important. And, and that's the value to radiation treatment, allows you to 
hopefully preserve some vision. And I found even a small amount of peripheral vision is useful to folks. So it may be disheartening to not have normal vision, but I do believe, from my experience with patients, that any vision is worth fighting for. So um, <clears throat> now, we had this earlier. Will I need treatment for radiation side effects? Next click. The answer is probably. I think almost everybody uh, needs it eventually. And uh, so as we're watching patients in the years after treatment, the first year or two is to make sure that the tumor's adequately treated. Usually we have a pretty good sense of that. But we're also fighting for vision. Um, we find it can, you can actually improve the vision in some cases. We've certainly seen that. Uh, sometimes treatment is just designed to prevent or delay vision loss as long as you can. And again, I also think it's just a healthy eye is going to last longer. And if you have a blind eye that's unhealthy, full of blood, the chances that it will become painful and deteriorate and ultimately cause you a lot of trouble are, are, are significant. So even for those reasons, even if it's not for vision, I believe treatment of these side effects is important. Next slide, please. So I want to show, we went over the anatomy of the eyeball. Uh, again, I thank you for introducing the concepts. I think the important thing is the macula. That's the center part of your vision. And I, I like to talk about the front of the eye and the back. So the anterior is the front of the eye. Posterior is the back. So when I ask a patient or I tell my technician, let's do the posterior exam, I'm not asking for you to turn around. We're looking in the back of your eyeball. So uh, here's an example of uh, a posterior choroidal melanoma being treated in a clinic. Um, he's going to use that in clinic. All right. This shows, this, there's an animated feature that's supposed to play here. There's the plaque and then the penumbra. There's the radiation effect. And we can see it's, it's, actually that's a pretty good clean plaque there. It's not hitting the nerve, it's not hitting the lens, not hitting the front of the eye. Most patients will fit into this category. Um, but the radiation, go ahead, keep clicking. I'm sorry, I'm used to clicking myself. This is not easy to do here. How does radiation retinopathy work? It's, it's damage to blood vessels. And um, this reduces the blood flow, reduces the oxygenation. And your retina burns oxygen like crazy. So um, this will reduce the function. And then, as we've heard, secondary effects will cause macular edema. Swelling of the retina. These are very treatable. Next slide, please. Um, so here's an example of macular edema. I have the, the pictures on their sides just to show what they truly are like when your head is up. Your head is oriented straight up, and the light goes straight to the back. And we'll see that middle picture there, the swollen retina, after treatment with injections, can return to a normal appearance and actually improve its function. Um, the edema is actually a secondary effect from the radiation, um, or even a tertiary, I suppose you could say. This, this gives you an example here, a picture showing where the blood vessels have dropped out. I don't know if you guys can see inside the yellow circle there. You see all this, what we would call pruning of blood vessels. And this is due to radiation. Now, the tumor in this eye was treated off to the right side, and the blast zone, if you will, of damage extended into the center. Uh, unfortunately, we can't grow new blood vessels there to fix the vision, but we can treat the swelling that develops secondarily to that. Um, 
vitreous hemorrhage. Here's a hemorrhage. It looks kind of funny. It looks like a smiling face almost there. The red eyeball is a source of hemorrhage, and it's pooled actually in front of the blood below, what we would call a boat hemorrhage. And this is a sign that this eye is getting ready to bleed a lot more, so we ought to treat when we see this. Um, you can have um, vitreous hemorrhages, but you can also have, due to ischemia, another condition called neovascular glaucoma. That's a really very serious consequence. Next slide. So um, here shows a, a moderate hemorrhage on the left. Uh, and that on the right, we see an ultrasound where there's been a massive sub, uh, hemorrhage in the eye. And as the eye moves about, you can see the blood jiggling a little bit. In my experience, um, at least half the time, you got to go in there and clean it out with surgery. Next slide. Here, this unfortunate patient has a tumor right in his macula. He's just not going to see well. There's not much we can do about it, no matter what we do. Uh, there's still a point to treatment, though, however, to preserve the health of the eye. But you can see that goes right into his macula. And he was just mildly symptomatic at the beginning, but unfortunately, we know he's not going to do well in terms of visual acuity. Next slide. The, if you could um, back up to that slide. No. Okay, yeah. So um, this act, there's actually a really good point to treating eyes just like this, right? So the, the tumor is in the macula, right? But the, the vision to your left is all uh, on the other side, right? And going across the street... Um, you know, that's visual field that your other eye can't pick up, right? So to see something coming from way out on the other side, that's actually really important vision to try to, to, try to treat. So the center vision isn't going to be great, but there's a lot of point to, to keeping up injections and trying to save that vision. I absolutely agree. I had one guy who worked in a garage, and he could only see a little bit off to the side. That was it. And one day, his eye filled up with blood, and he came rushing in. He said, I need that vision back, because that helps me from tripping over stuff uh, as I'm going about my uh, work. And we did surgery, cleared him out, and he did well. Uh, go ahead, next slide, please. Uh, here's a diagram of a tumor that's near the nerve, the radiation dose. Go ahead, hit it. There you go. Hits the nerve uh, just because of the placement. We can't avoid it. Uh, next slide. Um, so here's a guy, it is a little hard to point out, but the, if you look in the left picture on the lower side, that is his nerve all swollen up. It's not the best picture. But after we gave him steroid therapy, his nerve returned to normal. His vision improved enormously. And this is, a, I find these, uh, I don't know about you guys, but optic neuropathy tends to respond fairly quickly to treatment, and it's pretty impressive. It kind of goes away and doesn't come back either. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I think we were talking about this earlier. Um, can, can you guys hear me? All right. Um, 
yeah, the the radiation maculopathy tends to be relentlessly progressive. <laughs> it, it gets worse and worse and worse as time goes on. But the radiation optic neuropathy is interesting. It's kind of monophasic. You, you'll sort of hit this point at which the optic nerve becomes swollen, and it's basically uh, analogous to something called... Uh, an anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, which is like a stroke in the optic nerve. But once you get past that, you know, which may take three to six months, there's not generally that much progressive nerve damage beyond that point. So I think if you treat it aggressively with steroids to really nurse the optic nerve through that, that moment in the treatment trajectory, um, you know, we can potentially save a lot of vision in these patients. Dave, you see the same thing? I do. And I think steroid is a is a much better treatment for Absolutely. for optic neuropathy than than regular injections. But you got to get it early, you got to get it early and you hit it hard. And then, it, but if you do, I think you can make a big difference. Yeah, I, I use orals and topicals. So my patients eat their steroids and tell them take them in the morning because you don't want to be up all night. But uh, usually, a short course uh, takes care of it. But you're right; it can be it can be a long slog, but you generally get through it. People do pretty well, so it's. Encouraging to see that those recovery, the ability to recover from that. Uh, let's see next. So uh, I think we covered this here. Uh, anterior tumor. Here's an iris melanoma. Put the plaque on there. Uh oh, what are we hitting over here? Well, we're not hitting the nerve or the macula, but we're hitting the green. That's the cornea. That's the part of your eye you can touch. And you're hitting the iris. You're hitting the ciliary body, but you're also hitting what we call the angle, which is where the body will drain. Uh, internally, the eye will drain fluid and maintain its pressure. Next slide. Uh, here's the melanoma, the ciliary body. Similar thing. We're hitting some of the same structures, including the lens. Uh, next slide. So the cornea, I'm going to go through just little specific parts of the eye that can be damaged. The cornea, of course, is the front part. This is usually temporarily after the procedure on an anterior uh, procedure. You'll uh, see some corneal swelling, but it recovers very quickly. But you can have some damage to that cornea. I think it's pretty uh, rare, I'd have to say, but I've seen it over, over the years. People at long-term, their cornea can degrade uh, from radiation treatment. Uh, next slide, please. Um, cataract. I don't know if this, they look, it looks kind of green on the side there. The patient didn't have green eyes, at least not that bright. But <clears throat> I think you can see the, can you guys see the melanoma in the top picture there, the upper dark shadow? behind the lens in the center. Um, we, it was a large anterior tumor. We treated it with radiation. And as it kind of shrunk, it left this slithering sort of mark on the back of the lens. And um, there was a cataract that needed to be removed. We talked about this earlier, but uh, that certainly affects the patient vision. This guy's doing great, by the way. He, he just got married and just had a baby, and now his kid's uh, uh, most of the way through elementary school, and he's doing super. Um, so the tumor can actually touch the lens. And I have, on a rare occasion, I don't know about you guys, have had a tumor sent in to me when the cataract surgeon was performing cataract surgery and discovered the tumor during the cataract surgery. That's kind of spooky. Um, that's, it, um, it happens. Yeah. It does. Yeah. They can be hard to see, those anterior ones hiding behind the iris. Very hard to detect on routine eye exams. Okay. Uh, next... Uh, so eye pressure, ocular hypertension, can lead to a condition called glaucoma. 
and it, it, it's the high pressure of the eye somehow damages the optic nerve. Uh, normally, your pressure is between 10 and 22. I like how patients will say, my pressure was 15 last time. It's 16 today. Is that a problem? And the answer is, no, not really. You know, 30 is a problem, maybe. But it, uh, over time, an elevated pressure can lead to pain if it's a, a, acute. But in generally, we worry more about the loss of vision, the damage to the optic nerve, which is unlike the other form of radiation optic neuropathy. Damage to your optic nerve is not typically reversible. Um, you can get high pressures from having a vitreous hemorrhage in your eye or this thing we call neovascular glaucoma. And the treatment, again, for that is injections and lasers. Now, you don't want to do surgery for glaucoma. This is, I don't know, love to hear your guys' thoughts, but uh, the worry is, you know, there's, there's great treatments for glaucoma, and some of them involve lasers. That's a great idea. But an incisional surgery for glaucoma usually involves putting a drain in the eye. It's like a pressure valve that allows the fluid out of the eye. But the concern is that the tumor cells can get out and deposit themselves behind the eye. I've debated myself whether or not to worry about that, but in general, I found most people won't do tubes. Scott, you're smiling. <laughs> I mean, my advice is the same from a medical legal perspective because some of these uh, tumors are gonna spread no matter what we do. If we put a tube in the eye, we may wonder if we uh, contributed to that. So in general, incisional glaucoma surgery is avoided in eyes with a history of melanoma. There are a lot of laser options, um, and uh, uh, cyclophotocoagulation is a good option for a, a blind eye that uh, is hypertensive. You know, I, this, is a, this is a topic that I hope that we as a community will start tackling in a, much, in, in a little bit more of a comprehensive way, right? Because the glaucoma, so open glaucoma surgery, basically like cutting new holes into the eye to let to let pressure drain out. That works really, really well for standard types of glaucoma. In general, we've been um, sort of averse to doing that in the eyes that have malignant tumors in it for obvious reasons. But, there, but there's no good reason that we're so afraid of it, right? We're just so afraid of it because we're so afraid of it. So the, at some point in the future, I hope that you know, we kind of grow a pair and figure out if, you know, if, the, if this is the kind of thing that, that we actually can do. Because there are a lot of patients who have intractable glaucoma who really could use a tube, and we, and, and we just say, no, I think we need to either cyclophotocoagulate, which means like you blast it with this laser, and it stops making fluid, or you take the eye out. And I think eventually we'll get to the point where we don't have to do that. I don't know if a tube's the answer, but it would be great to start answering that question. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm glad you feel that way. I do too. It seems like it should be safe to do. You would think the cells are dead, whatever they are floating out. I did talk to a um, uh, famous doctor in Philadelphia about this, and um, uh, the the, Concern was, I guess there was a case where they did an enucleation after a glaucoma surgery and they found cells behind the eye. But I don't think there's been a case of it actually spreading. So it's a controversial area. Well, it looks like I probably should keep moving through my talk here and finish up. Um, probably just a couple more slides here, Dave. Why don't we just shoot on through? So other things to think about. Um, 
The surgical incisions, we talked about that. Uh, next slide, please. The extraocular tissues, you can have an eyelid ptosis just from the procedure where your upper eyelid is down. Uh, a lot of people have that. Um, I've talked to oculoplastics. It's a pretty quick fix with a little stitch, but uh, so don't be afraid of it. They'll do it for you. They'll fix your eye and uh, balance you out. Um, it is fairly common, though, with a lot of forms of eye surgery, frankly, not just the uh, brachytherapy. Conjunctiva, we see that gets scarred up. Uh, the eye can be tight, feel weird, become irritated. You can have issues with dryness. Um, nasal incisions, the ones near your nose, uh, especially you ladies. You guys are always looking in the mirror at yourself, putting on makeup. And if you look at near your nose, the normal structure is really pretty complicated. And getting that just right put back together after surgery is not as easy as it might sound. Next slide. Um, we talked about extraocular muscles. They can, they, I found they can adhese to the surface of the eye. They can cause double vision. Uh, they can restrict the eye movements. Um, and actually, it's okay to do surgery. Here's a case where you can go back in and, if you need to, have some corrective eye surgery done there. Um, retinal detachments you talked about. Sometimes we have to repair these. That's okay to go in and do a vitrectomy. We see chronic inflammatory states of the eye, and oftentimes uh, steroid bursts are needed a year or two out following treatments. It's interesting. I do believe the eye can go into a chronic inflammatory state. That's been well observed. So steroids, actually, strangely enough, I find that after doing anti-VEGF therapy for a few years, I find I need to go to steroids more frequently down the road for management of, of the eye. Um, I think this is close to the final. So it's safe to treat your eye for these radiation side effects. It's safe to put needles in there. It can improve your vision. There's benefits to it. It can delay the loss. What this is, It can improve your comfort. But it may forestall the inevitable. Even after, you know, maybe you can preserve it for five years and then you lose the battle. Well, at least that's perhaps five years more than you would have had. Final slide, I just want to share. There's a couple trials coming out. You may hear about them in the future. Uh, looking at actual trials for radiation retinopathy. <clears throat> right now, if I go to code and check a box, I'm going to treat you for radiation retinopathy. That I there is no box. We have to do angiograms and label you guys as having branch vein retinal occlusions, things of that nature. So hopefully, by these having these trials coming out, we're going to have a system of classification that is used as well as an acceptance by the medical community, that this is its own separate entity that should be paid for in terms of therapy. Next slide. I have to show off the last slide. There, there we are a couple years ago in the OR. It's a team, and you guys are part of it. We're part of it, and, and it, thank you all for being here. It's, it's good to see so many patients at once. Thanks. Can I, can I make a suggestion? Um, uh, I wonder if we uh, might take a short, short break right now. All right and that we can get the rest of the talks up on the computer, which I think is going to help us click through them from a, um, just a logistics standpoint. Maybe, yeah, and then, because right now, right now I think they're being controlled, um, not uh, from us, but from, from the back. And, what, and because our last session is pretty short, I think we can do the remainder of this session with the last session together. 
that's fine. You think that'd be okay? So why don't we take why don't we take a five minute break now? We'll yeah, finish so this session. You guys hang out here. This is yeah. not a break for you. This is yeah. a break for these guys yeah. to figure things out. And I will actually run through some important information for those of you here in person. Yeah. Um, and then we'll finish everything. Perfect. Next up is Dr. Walter talking about endo endo laser. Endo laser. Endo laser. All right. Let's let's pull up the slides. Perfect. So uh, I think in the next couple of talks, we're going to talk about some of the treatment advances for primary treatment of uveal melanoma. Um, as we talked about earlier, plaque brachytherapy has kind of replaced a nucleation as our um, you know, primary treatment for most patients. But as we move towards treating smaller and smaller tumors, I think that we may be um, uh, shifting uh, away from plaque brachytherapy towards some... Uh, uh, less destructive uh, treatment modalities as our primary treatment. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience using vitrectomy with endolaser photoablation uh, for uh, small melanocytic tumors. Um, so maybe we're going forward, maybe we aren't. All right, so all three of us are vitreoretinal surgeons who also practice ocular oncology. And I think, you know, conventionally ocular oncologists were in their own um, you know, uh, uh, field, but I think more and more vitreoretinal surgeons uh, are comfortable managing intraocular tumors, and a lot of you may have been treated by uh, people who function both as ocular oncologists and vitreoretinal surgeons. So um, the surgical techniques that a vitreoretinal surgeon brings to the table may be very different than the surgical techniques that someone who's trained exclusively in ocular oncology. So Pars plana vitrectomy is kind of our standard surgical technique for addressing most uh, issues in the back of the eye, such as retinal detachments, macular holes, macular puckers, removal of blood from the eye. Um, so it's a, a technique that we're all very comfortable performing, um, and it's a safe way of accessing uh, structures on the inside of the eye. So we know that diagnostic vitrectomy is part of our uh, armamentarium already is uh, uh, oncologist. It's a standard uh, surgical technique for biopsying vitreous uh, lymphoma and other metastatic cancers to the vitreous. Um, and it's often uh, our preferred technique for biopsying choroidal melanomas, uh, specifically among uh, those of us who are trained as VR surgeons, vitreoretinal surgeons. So we know that therapeutic, or sorry, that, that uh, diagnostic Vitrectomy can be used in the context of making a diagnosis, but how can it help us therapeutically? So in vitreoretinal lymphoma, which is another extremely rare cancer that we treat, um, I think it plays a very important role. You're basically removing the lymphoma cells from the eye, and that in and of itself is therapeutic for a lot of patients in conjunction with other therapies, such as intravitreal chemotherapy and radiation. So is there a role for therapeutic vitrectomy in choroidal melanoma? So um, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what I mean by endolaser photocoagulation. So um, this is an illustration of a, a curved illuminated endolaser probe, which is being inserted through that little port on the outside of the eye into the eye. And uh, you can see that the surgeon is depressing the outside of the eye here and applying laser to the retina. And this is done uh, in retinal detachment surgeries, uh, in diabetic vitrectomy surgeries in order to create an intentional burn of the retina. And the way that works is that the laser energy gets absorbed by melanin, which is the pigment 
in the liner underneath the retina, and then the laser energy is dissipated as heat to the retina and the um, choroid, which are sort of the tissues immediately adjacent to the retinal pigment epithelium. And this causes a burn in the retina and ultimately tissue death um, that leads to a scar that seals the retinal hole in, in the case of a retinal tear or detachment. So uh, that's kind of how conventional endolaser photocoagulation works. Basically, heat stress leads to necrosis of the tissue and cell death. Um, so how about photoablation for choroidal melanoma? So basically, same concept, uh, the melanoma contains melanin, which is the same pigment that's in the retinal pigment epithelium. So it makes sense that the melanoma would absorb the laser energy, dissipate that energy as heat, and the heat stress would then lead to death of tumor cells um, uh, as a result of the application of laser to the tumor. Uh, the potential advantage of treating with laser is that it's a more targeted therapy than radiation. There's really a very small field of damage. It's very targeted. Um, so there's less damage to the surrounding retina. So potentially we could be a little bit more targeted in our therapy with laser than we can be with radiation, which has this wider field of uh, collateral damage around uh, the, the treatment area. So Tim Murray, who uh, is an ocular oncologist and vitreoretinal surgeon, and actually probably one of the most um, preeminent vitreoretinal surgeons who practices ocular oncology. He was recently the president of the American Society of Retina Specialists. So he gave a very interesting talk at this year's uh, meeting of the American Society of Retina Specialists in the Ocular Oncology Symposium. And he was basically arguing that small class two uh, melanomas can be effectively treated with this um, type of therapy, directly ablating uh, the tumor with laser without the use of radiation. Uh, this is, of course, a single center experience. Um, and I think that um, uh, you know the, the fact that someone who's so prominent in the field is willing to kind of put this out there as a potential treatment option is a sign that we should really be thinking seriously about who this may make sense for. So what are some of the potential limitations? So the wavelength of the laser that we use in uh, endolaser vitrectomy is uh, shorter than the wavelength of the TTT laser. So the TTT laser is 810 nanometers, whereas the uh, uh, endolaser is 532 nanometers. And the reason that makes a difference is that the wavelength of the light actually affects how deeply the tissue penetrates, or sorry, the, the laser energy penetrates into the tissue. So that's why you may have heard us talking earlier about TTT as a good treatment option for thin tumors, maybe tumors less than two millimeters. It's possible that you know the limitation on size may be even greater for this um, endolaser, unless we can figure out how to hook up an 810 nanometer uh, wavelength source to our endolaser probe, which to my knowledge is not currently available. Actually, there's a guy doing it, uh, Scott Oliver at the University of Colorado. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a great idea to, to try and incorporate that 810 nanometer wavelength. Um, I, I lost my slides there. So anyway, my current perspective is that um, this is an effective therapy um, for small extrafoveal melanomas. So if, uh, if the melanoma is in the fovea and you laser the fovea, you're going to have instantaneous vision loss. So we obviously don't want to do that. Um, uh, and I 
personally reserve it for uh, tumors with a uh, genetically low risk of metastasis. So the class one preem negative tumors, I'm comfortable treating with this. I'm, I'm not yet comfortable treating a small class two tumor with this uh, modality unless we have, you know, really well-designed um, prospective data to support it. So I think in the future, um, this should be evaluated further. A lot of us are using this in, in select patients, and maybe a multicenter meta-analysis would allow us to establish a better consensus in the field about when this is an appropriate treatment. Um, and I think once we've done that, the next step would be to have a randomized prospective clinical trial to really determine the efficacy in preventing metastasis, particularly in higher risk tumors, and establish you know, the safety profile of this treatment. So that's it. I think it's a great idea. I, I think there's a role for it. Thanks for presenting. I completely agree, Scott. I think, um, I think this is a great way to start, uh, especially if you're vitreoretinal trained. And, um, and if you have a small tumor, then uh, knowing that you can have focused therapy, um, but also choosing your patients wisely, um, I think is you know, a really good way to start. You always have radiation you know, to back yourself up if you need it. Um, I thought it was important to note the difference, because I had no idea there was a difference between TTE and endolaser. And so just specifying that difference so that, so that it's not just, uh, you know, maybe from the previous discussion that we had about like, well, no, we don't want to just do laser. It's like, no, there's a specific type of laser, and one laser might be better than the other, <laughs> or really is better than the other, and the other one should be used simultaneously or, you know, kind of in conjunction. When you're in the operating room, you have the op you, you know, you have the chance to get right up on top of the tumor too, and you, you can you can be a lot more. I, I think you can you have the opportunity to be a lot more aggressive, to be you know to, to to laser the tumor and do it in a much more focused way. And doing it in the office can be extraordinarily painful, and I, there are patients in here who uh, who are my patients who will um, concur with with that statement that. You know, if you really want to laser a tumor hot, it can be really, it can hurt a lot. Yeah, no, And it's tough sense. to numb up the eye um, in the office. So. Well, that's an important distinction, too. TTE can be done in the office, and a laser can only be done in the operating room. Right. Um, backpacking, backpacking, piggybacking <laughs> on, on that subject is uh, something I've been doing recently, and that's um, uh, endoresecting. Uh, the tumor. We talked a little bit about this in certain cases where we talked about re uh, recurrence of the tumor. What I've been doing is um, using, well, I don't really have a pointer, do I? Oh, yeah, I do. Using the um, vitrectomy setup, I will uh, enter the eye, then mark the tumor um, with uh, what's called an endodiathermy. This is a um, Basically, strong heat at the edge of the at the edge of a probe that I can put inside the inside the eye, surrounding that tumor, and then um, taking the uh, endo probe, making a little incision in the in the top of the tumor, um, using my cutter that I would take vitreous out, take that 
and then just start cutting the tumor down um, to, to the wall of the eye. What we do then is we, uh, there may be like little pieces of uh, tumor that are sort of stuck to the wall of the eye left behind. I have a forcep that I can use to remove those and uh, this can be done as sort of a complete um, primary treatment for the, for the primary tumor. Because we you know, have to go through the retina down to the back of the eye, we've created a retinal tear that has to be fixed uh, either with uh, a gas bubble and laser that we put in or sometimes we put in silicone oil. Uh, these are some of the uh, examples that, of patients that I've done it on. I've learned that um, there are good patients for this technique and there are not so great patients for this technique. The good patients are relatively small tumors that, right, that aren't right in the center of the vision, right? And it helps to, for me to be able to approach it uh, with my right hand. So it's a lot easier for me to approach the tumor um, if, it's, if I'm using my right hand on the temporal side of the eye, if it's in the left eye, because I'm coming from here, my right hand, I'm right-handed, I go that way across the eye, then I can approach that area much easier. Or if it's the patient's right eye and I'm right-handed, that it's there toward the part towards their nose. All that um, makes the surgery a whole lot easier. And there are certain patients that it works great for. One is uh, small peripheral tumors. The other is patients who have previously been radiated. I use it uh, in two cases here um, where we've um, used it as a uh, treatment for recurrence. It's also great when done um, if the patients have vitreous hemorrhage, a bunch of opacities inside the eye. And then I've learned um, who not to do it on, right? Um, patients with a lot of subretinal hemorrhage, hemorrhage underneath the retina. Um, and those patients have, have ended up with some really severe uh, recurrent retinal detachments. Uh, that was a learning process. But this is, um, this is I, I think, for me, the next step uh, in how to treat small tumors and also uh, in areas of recurrence that I may not want to re-irradiate. Hello. Uh, very interesting. Um, I noticed you had the, the GEP uh, type on all of these. So did you do the biopsy at the time of the endoresection? I did biopsy at the time of endoresection, yeah. If I was using it as a primary therapy, yeah. And so I would, I would remove the tumor, endoresect the tumor, do GEP. At the same time, I would, you know, also send cytology since I had tissue I could send. And then if the tumor was highly aggressive, I would go on and, and radiate it. I've done endoresections, but only on uh, previously plaque patients, uh, tumors that were recurrently hemorrhaging, for example. The, the tumor tissue I found was really quite rotten, and uh, removing it was the best solution. Interesting. What do you think, Scott? have any personal experience with this technique, um, I can definitely appreciate the PVR risk, um, making a large chorioretinectomy um, scar, which, you know, could potentially, you know, lead to issues. But I, I think it, it may play a role, um, you know, in, in uh, local control for the right patient. I think we can move on now. To I know the I think he, there's a European Spanish doctor that does this very frequently. 
um, his videos are crazy. He goes in there and just they they do it a lot in Europe. They do it a lot in Europe. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why don't we take some questions now? Um, a couple of the questions that we had that came in that were more relevant to what we've just talked about. Um, the can you just I guess maybe dumb endo resection down into layman layman's terms, like because I, I think I can say what I think I'm hearing, but I just want to make sure that that's what you guys are saying. So can you maybe dumb it down to layman's terms for us? Like what is it? Sure. So basically, going inside the eye, removing the retina over the tumor, and then cutting the tumor out with a, a very fancy sucker. So like this is, this is like we're talking about, this is a new advancement in this treatment for cancer as, as an option for using. It's, um, a, it's a new theme on an old uh, treatment. So there, okay. um, there, there were, it was in favor for a while. Uh, then as um, plaques got a little bit better, uh, people um, got away from using this technique. Um, myself and others, especially not in this country, but uh, myself and others are using it uh, more and more for a certain select group of patients. Okay, um, so the study mentioned that, I think, can't remember if it was, I can't honestly remember which of you mentioned it, but the study that was mentioned from ISOO about the um, predicted outcomes of the smaller class two patients that if it was treated earlier, it was found to like have a better outcome. Was that all types of treatment were, were studied or was it only specific? Like were, was it brachytherapy, proton beam, and the endolaser or was it only endolaser? And if you don't, don't remember, you can point us to the resource for where we can learn. Uh, I can't say I know what you're referring to. Um, Tim Murray's study, uh, which was presented at ASRS, okay. um, uh, included a variety of treatment modalities. His basic conclusion was that early definitive treatment of a class two tumor is, 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 you know, potentially curative. And I think that we've seen that in the retrospective uh, data as well. So uh, Bill Harbour and I did a study a few years ago where we looked at two large cohorts of. Uh, patients with class two melanoma, um, and tried to find a size cutoff at which, um, uh, you know, treating the tumor uh, was likely to be curative. Uh, and basically, in both cohorts, we validated a 12 millimeter size uh, threshold. So basically, you know, if we can effectively eradicate the tumor before the basal diameter reaches 12 millimeters even if the genetics of the tumor are quite aggressive, we have a much higher likelihood of preventing metastasis. And that holds up, you know, for from when even before there was genetic testing available, right? Um, you know, one of the studies that I like to cite is a millimeter by millimeter in, uh, thickness analysis that was done by Carol in 8,000 patients. And what she found was that essentially for every millimeter increase in thickness of a melanoma at the time of treatment, your risk of metastasis goes up by 5%. So a one millimeter tumor by itself without any other information has about a 5% risk of metastasis in the future. A 10 millimeter tumor without any other information has about a 50% chance of risk. So. Information um, some of us may like and some of us may not want to do that math. <laughs> right. Right. 
I, was, I think the, the but point the is the doctors could do that math, and you guys understand yeah. that, so that's the important thing. Well, I think this is really the issue. I mean, um, uh, a few years ago, I was at a meeting, and um, one of the doctors, a famous doctor from New York, uh, said, do you think we are affecting anything by treating the eye? And uh, I think this is, uh, this is where we are. There's some hope that if we get them early, we can, we can help, but... Sadly, too often the uh, you know the way we properly interpret the genetics is that uh, uh, by the time we've treated the eye, the cells in the high risk patients have already spread, and we just can't find them uh, with the PET CT. We may not know for years, but for example, class two or a VAP one mutation, we think that the cells by the time we meet you, the very first time, those little cells are already out there. And uh, even if you get a PET CT scan and you're clean, they're probably out there. And that's what that means, being a high-risk patient. Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't mean that the local control failed. We can enucleate you. That was the COMS study. You can actually just remove the eye and the tumor, but the, the risk of metastatic disease is still there due to the... Micro-metastases. What's well, the intrinsic property of the cells? The... Tumor, a class two tumor is different than a class one tumor. Yeah. We had a couple uh, questions from the back. Can we make sure we get a mic on them? Right. Hold on, hold on. Okay, so her question is, why are a lot of surgeons saying, well, let's just wait and watch and see what happens for this small nevus that we think might be melanoma, but maybe it isn't? I think Dr. Walter and Dr. Hoagland, you all have an opinion, I can tell. <laughs> I mean, I don't, my feeling is that, I'm trying to phrase this in the, in the, in the best possible way. <laughs> the, my feeling is that it's not too, it's not too likely that by the time you come see one of us that there's really a question about what's going on, all right? By the time you've gotten to one of us, m someone has had an inkling that what you have is a melanoma, right? And in that case, you're probably gonna leave that visit with a plan about treatment, right? 95% of the time, when somebody comes to see me, and there's a question that maybe it's a melanoma, they were right, and we're gonna treat it. And so I don't love um, uh, prolonging that process and waiting for it to grow a little more so that I can be more convinced. That being said, right, there are lesions that you don't wanna treat, right? And that, you, and that they may be really vision-threatening. Right? And, you don't, and you know that the results of what you're about to do to somebody right, have like very significant consequences, harm. right? Have very significant consequences. And so you do want to be sure. Um, but I think those moments, at least in my experience, are becoming less and less common. Yeah. So, and I mean, could there be some, some argument here that if that is happening or you know a patient that's happening to that that person should seek a different opinion at that point if they are feeling like they're being watched and waited and they don't like that. If I could jump in. Um, 
I think there's a historical context here too. Uh, back in the days when enucleation was the only option in the 70s, uh, the standard of care was watch that smaller lesion, if you will, to make sure you know it's a melanoma before you remove the eye. Mm -hmm. And um, I find that still, I, I guess I, I feel a little bit differently, Dave. I, I seem to be, the, 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 the obvious melanomas are obvious. The ones I struggle with are the ones that are, you know, gee, did this thing grow? It, it wasn't seen before. It's got orange pigment, a little fluid, but it's less than a millimeter thick, and it's six, seven millimeters in diameter. And, and then should I watch this or treat it? And you almost feel like if you watch, and then three months later you say, ah, it's growing, you feel like, gosh dang it, I should have treated it three months ago. So uh, should we err? On the, uh, on the side of over-treating these things and jumping and getting on board? Or should we be watching these things? So that's does, I have a question. I mean, does Dr. Walter have anything that he would weigh in on that as, as far as the early biopsies can go? I know we've kind of talked a little about that before. Yeah, so, I mean, most patients fall into one of two categories. Either it's, you know, pretty obviously a nevus that we can watch, or it's pretty obviously a melanoma, which we need to treat. But... There are a substantial number of patients that fall into sort of the gray zone in between, where it's sort of a clinically suspicious but small tumor um, that has some risk factors or features that are, you know, suggestive of melanoma. But I can't really tell from looking at it whether it's a melanoma or not. And that's where I think that um, an early biopsy um, can help guide the next steps in management of that patient. So um, these, these sort of suspicious, clinically indeterminate smaller tumors, I will often biopsy and treat with the endolaser photoablation if it's in an area where we can um, you know, spare the vision. So at least we've done something to pre treat the primary tumor. And if it comes back class two or BAP1 mutation positive, I'm gonna convince that patient that they need plaque brachytherapy on top of my treatment. But if it comes back class 1A, frame negative, I'm more comfortable observing um, uh, a lesion either you know, with the laser therapy or in some cases without any therapy um, if we know that therapy would be visually damaging to the patient. And I think, I, I think we're in complete agreement there. Is that we have a lot more things in our armamentarium now than we used to. Right, and the fact that we can biopsy and biopsy safely before moving on um, with, with brachytherapy or, um, or with proton beam or whatever is, you know, it, it, it's a really um, significant uh, arrow in our quiver. I, I must admit, if I, not to prolong too much, but I have seen a few lesions, most typically ones that surround the optic nerve completely where the, it's, you're gonna be blinded no matter what if we treat you. And I've had patients dig in their heels and say, I wanna wait. And I've got a few of them I've been watching now for eight years or more and it never did change. Oh, and if, if, I would I say if the, if, the patient, if the patient has a strong opinion about it, that's, that's an entirely different situation. So your question, your question about should, should, they, should the patient seek an alternate opinion, the answer to that is not necessarily because there's, there's nothing stronger than a really good, committed relationship between a doctor and a patient. So the, that, that, that is at the top 
of really the treatment food chain. If like you can really create a trusting relationship between your doc, you know, between your patient and your doctor. So um, anything that we say up here, if you feel really strongly about how you're doing with your particular doctor, always comes in second place. You know, but this is actually a really good segue to our next uh, discussion, which is um, on the topic of. Uh, what we used to call AU011, um, and it's a uh, treatment for, uh, a novel treatment for primary tumors um, that are smaller and determinate or growing. And this is a uh, treatment that's um, brought to us by one of our sponsors, um, a company called Aura. Um, I, I should disclose that I'm uh, I've been asked by Aura to deliver this uh, presentation. I've contracted with them to do so. I'm an investigator in the Aura clinical trial, and we're going to talk about some of the data that's come out of that for small and indeterminate lesions. So what this is, you need to think about ways that stuff gets into your body, okay? Ways that stuff gets into your cells. And one of the ways that stuff gets into your cells that we've talked about a lot in the last three years is through a virus, okay? And so what I want you to think a little bit about this treatment is we've attached a molecule to something that acts like a virus, all right? That virus then gets into your body. It's a safe virus. It's like a, a safe-ish virus. And, and, then, um, and then attaches to cells that it targets specifically, okay? So this is like a little bit of a complicated concept, okay? This medicine can find cells that are specific to cancer, all right? And along with this thing that acts like a virus is a molecule that attaches to that tumor cell, okay? It's a targeted therapy with multiple potential sites of cancer within the body, the most pertinent of which today is choroidal melanoma. And this um, molecule, all right, which we're gonna call Belsar, previously always called AU011, all right, is an investigational novel therapy which attaches itself, when you inject it into the eye, attaches itself to melanoma cells. All right, and if you activate it with a certain wavelength of light, that can have two effects on those tumor cells. One is it causes it literally to just blow up, okay? Or it attracts your immune system, your own immune system to that cell. Danae, you may want to turn off your microphone. Yeah, turn your microphone. Attracts your own immune system to that cell and causes it to kill it. All right. The what this allows us to do. Okay, we make the assumption that every lesion is like a little bit benign. Every lesion that's malignant is a little bit benign, and a little bit malignant. Right. This has the potential to attach itself just to the malignant cells within that lesion. Okay, then you light it up, it blows those cells up, it gets a scar, and you've treated the primary tumor, all right? That's really the thought behind how this works. 
the medication is either delivered by an intravitreal injection, which a lot of you are familiar with, okay, or by injecting into a space called the suprachoroidal space, which is between uh, the eye wall and the choroid, all right? The choroid is where these melanomas occur, all right? And then there's a special wavelength of light that we use to excite this medication, and then it goes on to killing the tumor and sparing you the potential side effects of radiation. And um, several of us who have, you've seen today have been part of the uh, investigator group that are looking and evaluating this tumor. I'm one of those people. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the data. So what we should say uh, initially is that this was the kind of trial that you could go into and know exactly what you were getting. All right? Not a lot of trials are like that. A lot of trials are, are masked, where you don't know what you're getting, the investigator doesn't know what you're getting. This one, you knew exactly what you were getting. All right? You had to make the conscious choice that you were going to get this experimental therapy. All right? And initially, the, the treatment was just for small melanomas that we decided were just melanomas by looking at them. All right? You came in, you saw an ocular oncologist who said, this is a melanoma. And um, uh, and then you we treated it. Okay. As time went on, that the people that were included were really just people who demonstrated significant growth measured by um, photographs or by ultrasound. Okay. These were um, the clinical endpoints. Right. We watched the tumor size grow or not grow. All right. As measured by ultrasound or and we were also particularly interested in visual acuity with the hypothesis that if we could um, treat these tumors with this novel agent, we would save patients uh, some vision loss. What we found was that you could prevent tumor growth, okay, by using this medication that you excited with a laser, all right, the highest effect, meaning the least tumor growth, Okay, what we were looking for is no growth or minimal growth. The highest effect was seen the more times you used the medication. Okay, so you injected more, you lasered it more, you injected some more again, you lasered it more again. Okay, and if you did that enough times, then you would get a significant response. Okay, this is an example of a patient who was in the study. All right, you can see on the left side of the screen, um, a lesion that was initially described as indeterminate, watched it over the course of treatment, watched it three months later at least, and they saw that there was significant growth. And this is exactly the kind of person who has done very, very well with this uh, investigational product. You watch them over the course um, of their treatment. They didn't keep all of their vision, right? So their baseline was 69 letters. Um, they kept 56 of them, all right? which is actually a pretty good uh, amount of vision. Um, most patients, the vision was preserved, okay? The most interesting thing is that even when the tumor was near the optic nerve or near the very center of the macula, the fovea, they had um, minimal vision loss. And these are exactly the kind of people that we worry about with vision loss for radiation retinopathy. Commonly, patients would develop some inflammation in the eye, okay? 
the lesion, the, the medication seems to draw the immune system in, all right? So getting inflammation inside the eye was a common thing. After you got over that, um, you started getting a lot of vision back. So the next way that, uh, so that was, the, that was the initial set of trials, okay? More recently, the company has been focusing on um, getting medication into the eye through the suprachoroidal space, okay? And what this is, is it's, it's like a teeny tiny sliver of a space. We call it a potential space, all right? Because it's, it's between two tissue layers that you can open up if you need to. Uh, and we're going to show you a video of that. What this potentially does is increases the amount of medication that you can get into the eye and reduce inflammation. So this, I don't know if we can play the video, but if we can, yes, we can, is how the medication works. So there is audio along with this video. I don't know if... Anyway, you depress the um, into the eye. This teeny tiny needle will go into the suprachoroidal space, all right? You inject the medication. It increases the size of the suprachoroidal space by injecting medication into there. And then that sort of goes around the, around the eye, and a lot of it then gets into the tumor. As time has gone on, um, more people have been enrolled into the trial. And so, as, so what we started with was a very small amount of medication, exciting it with one laser, right? As time has gone on, we found that more medication can be given safely, excited more times. Right now, um, patients are getting the highest dose of medication that we believe is going to be necessary and exciting it three times. And so. Um, the therapeutic regimen is completed in three treatment cycles. So you um, get uh, some medication, wait a little while for it to go around in the eye, use a laser, then wait 30 minutes, and then laser it again. And then one cycle of treatment consists of three weekly treatments of this medication and laser. The tumors that we're focusing on, again, we're not biopsying these particular tumors, okay? So the patient knows that we're watching these, looking for actual documented growth. These are the patients that we're looking for to confirm that they're melanoma, they're, so that there can be no question that what is happening is we're treating melanomas. In those patients, what we're finding is that the current therapeutic regimen, getting three cycles of treatment, um, has demonstrated really consistent and significant tumor stoppage, meaning it's not growing. Again, um, we've seen that there's been a significant preservation of vision, even when there's at the highest dose regimen. Um, and again, the uh, main risks of the, of the treatment have been inflammation. Once you got over that um, inflammation with sometimes with steroid therapy, sometimes for observation. Uh, that's when vision really started coming back and you were doing well. Um, the 
medication is going to have other potential uses in ocular oncology, so not just uh, choroidal melanoma. It also appears that uh, if you have a choroidal metastasis from um, a tumor like a primary breast, meta breast cancer or a primary lung cancer, this will also be an effective therapy as well. Um, and we can see that we can um, inhibit tumor growth and prolong survival, especially when it's given along with other therapies. Um, so the early work, the preclinical work, along with our current um, uh, stages of our trial are demonstrating that um, this is a potential treatment uh, for ocular cancers, especially ones uh, that start in the choroid, choroidal melanoma, and those that metastasize to the choroid. Um, they can be done along with uh, other, other therapies, uh, other immune therapies or chemotherapy um, for other cancers as well. Um, right now, uh, the current pipeline is for use primarily in choroidal melanoma, but we think that there's a potential for other tumors as well. And one of the current trials is for use of the medication in the bladder, actually. Happy to take questions. Yes, I'm back up. All right. Okay. So my question, when you were talking about the, the procedure, the staging of, okay, we administer the AU, AU011 drug, and then we laser, like, four to six hours, and then we laser, um, and then wait, and then laser again, what specific type of laser are you using? Is that the endo laser you discussed towards the last uh, presentation? No. Or a different it's one? A, it's a laser much more similar to what you would see uh, in somebody's office. Okay. But it's at a slightly... So lasers are made... Um, with specific wavelengths, okay, of light. This um, specific laser has a very specific wavelength of light that we use for this particular purpose. We don't use it for other purposes in, uh, in ophthalmology right now. Okay, so then my other question is, you mentioned it's being used to explore other cancers, and that's wonderful. My question is, is there room within this study or future studies that you can see or foresee uh, to research this drug you know, in, in researching its, its treatment of larger choroidal melanomas or, you know, medium-sized, large, or even other types of uveal melanoma, choroidal, um, ciliary body, conjunctival? The, I think um, your question is theoretical. Um, and what I would say is right now, the primary indications are, to, the primary purpose of the medication is to demonstrate that it works in treating smaller indeterminate size lesions. Um, and then... Uh, see what happens. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so as we kind of shift gears to the next slides, just keep in mind if you guys do have questions, please write them down on the pages. Um, keep in mind, again, these physicians are here, but they cannot offer specific medical advice. We know it's so tempting to want to offer all of, all of our specifics, right, because we are all very unique. Um, but just keep that in mind that if, if we don't answer your question, it's not because we don't want to, it's just because they cannot. Um, so thank you again for being here, and we're going to move on to our next presentation with Dr. Walter, and he's presenting for Castle Biosciences, who is our presenting sponsor. All right. Well, take it away. I think this is the last talk of the day, so we're going to talk about genetic testing in ocular melanoma, or more specifically, uveal melanoma. I don't have a disclosure slide, but I am a uh, participant in the COOG-2 trial, which is sponsored by Castle Biosciences 
and I have served uh, in an advisory board capacity for them, but they had no role in the construction of these slides, so these are my own thoughts. So my other title for the talk is Decoding the Ocular Melanoma Alphabet Soup. So there's a lot of uh, abbreviations on here, some of which may be familiar to uh, many in this room, but uh, there's probably, you know, I would guess that most people in this room can't um, explain what each of these uh, acronyms means. So hopefully by the end of today's talk, we'll all be a little bit more familiar with um, each of these uh, alphabet soup uh, particles. So the evolution of genetic testing, um, uh, you know, follows our uh, understanding of the genetic basis of uveal melanoma, which has really evolved over time. And it's been driven by some great clinician scientists, two of whom are uh, listed on this slide, um, Dr. Bertil D'Amato, who in the 1990s kind of pioneered our understanding of chromosomal changes in, um, uh, in uveal melanoma. And then in the 2000s to the present day, uh, Bill Harbour, who's one of my mentors, um, you know, has really kind of taken the field another great leap forward in helping us understand a gene expression profiling and the mutational changes that uh, are occurring in these tumors. So if we think about uh, levels of genetic testing, we can also think about the levels of the human genome. So there are 46 chromosomes uh, in the human genome. They're all, um, uh, well, uh, uh, 20, uh, 22 of them uh, are pairs, and then you have an X and an X, or an X and a Y, so that gives you a total of 46. Um, and on those 46 chromosomes, there are approximately 22,000 genes. And from those 22,000 genes, we produce approximately 140,000 um, RNA transcripts. And the RNA transcripts are the actual messages that the genes uh, send out that lead to the uh, production of proteins that actually affect the cellular biology. So if we uh, think about these different levels of the genome, we can think about levels of genetic testing at each of these uh, genomic levels. So MLPA looks at the chromosomal level, NGS, or next generation sequencing, looks at the gene level, and GEP, or gene expression profiling, looks at the RNA level. Um, so these are all different levels of the human genome that we're looking at. And as we have um, kind of gone from this higher order of the chromosomes down to uh, gene expression profiling, you can see that we're uh, kind of, we're, you know, with, with the chromosomal analysis, we're looking at a larger percentage of the, the human genome, 17% or eight of the chromosomes, but we're looking with sort of, you know, a, a, a foggy telescope, right? We can see a little bit of what's going on, but you know, at the chromosomal level, but we can't really see what's going on at the individual genetic level. Whereas as we hone in on these um, uh, genetic signatures and RNA signatures, we're really being much more targeted and specific in the types of information that we're extracting from the tumor DNA. Um, so we're really only looking at um, uh, less than 1% um, of the genome when we're analyzing it with next generation sequencing or gene expression profiling. So the evolution of genetic testing has been uh, pioneered by, uh, you know, two companies uh, in particular, Castle Biosciences, uh, introduced their gene expression profiling test uh, and made it commercially available um, in 2009, and this followed on the footsteps of Bill Harbour's work in the lab. 
uh, Impact Genetics introduced their um, multiplex ligation, um, I can't even pronounce, MLPA NGS testing in uh, 2014. Um, and then uh, Castle Biosciences expanded their testing uh, offerings in 2016 and 2018 to add prime and next generation sequencing to their uveal melanoma diagnostic package. So we're gonna now talk a little bit more about uh, these uh, different aspects of genetic testing. So MLPA stands for Multiplex Ligation Dependent Probe Amplification, and this is a, a technology that's used to detect chromosomal changes. We're specifically looking at um, chromosomes one, three, six, and eight, and when it says disomy one, disomy three, disomy six, disomy eight, that's normal. That means you have two copies of chromosome one, two copies of chromosome three, two copies of chromosome six, and two copies of chromosome eight. That's how your, your eye was born. The melanocyte has the normal chromosomal profile. Now, if you have an 8Q gain, that's a change in the structure of the chromosomes um, that's associated with an intermediate risk of metastasis. But the big risk factor with chromosomal testing is something called monosomy 3, um, and then there's a variation on that called isodisomy 3, and both of these are associated with a high risk of uh, metastasis. Um, patients that have monosomy 3 can go on to develop additional changes, such as loss of uh, the uh, 1P portion of chromosome 1, which can increase their risk, or they can gain 6P, which leads to a slight reduction in their risk of metastasis. So this is kind of the information that is collected with the um, uh, uh, testing um, uh, when we're looking at chromosomes. So now let's go down to the gene level or next generation sequencing. It's just a targeted um, sequencing looking at DNA mutations in a specific subset of genes. And I've listed here seven genes that are included on Castle's uh, NGS panel for uveal melanoma. And we can divide these genes into two categories. There's the initiator mutations. And for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to leave out um, uh, two of those and just focus on the more common GNAQ and GNA11 mutations. So most of our um, uh, tumors, whether they're a benign nevus or a choroidal melanoma, will have an initiator mutation in GNAQ or GNA11. And this is sort of the first step that the, that the cell takes on the pathway to becoming a um, choroidal melanoma. But it's not a melanoma yet, okay? It needs an additional driver mutation, at least this is our current level of understanding, in one of three genes, BAP1, SF3B1, or EIF1AX, to go from a nevus into a melanoma. So there's two mutations that make it a melanoma, and one of those mutations is common to a nevus, and one of those mutations is unique to it being a melanoma. So uh, here's just a schematic. We start out with a GNAQ or GNA11 mutation that gives you a nevus, and then on top of that, you get uh, an additional mutation in EIF1AX, SF3B1, or BAP1, which turns it into a melanoma. And it's pretty rare that you have multiple mutations. Like, a, it, it'd be unusual to have a BAP1 mutation and an EIF1AX mutation. You, generally speaking, only have one of these additional driver mutations in your tumor. 
All right, now let's talk about gene expression profiling. So this is kind of a more complicated concept. Gene expression profiling uses RNA, which are those transcripts that are being produced from the genes in the genome to measure the activity of many genes at once. So we can look at the whole genome, or transcriptome, which is 140,000 RNA transcripts, and we get this, you know, kind of messy plot here of, you know, some genes are upregulated, some genes are downregulated in individual cells. And this would vary depending on whether you're looking at an eye um, uh, cell, um, you know, or a nerve cell or a pancreas cell. You know, every cell has a different gene expression profile. And uh, tumors uh, have a different gene expression profile than the originator cell. So the melanocyte has. Uh, one gene expression profile, and then as the melanocyte turns into a bad-acting melanoma, it acquires a different gene expression profile. So the way this was figured out was using machine learning, because we're talking about an enormous data set of hundreds of thousands of um, data points for each individual tumor, and basically, um, you know, they, they created this large data set of information from a well-annotated data set of tumors, and we knew that some of those tumors metastasized and some of those tumors didn't metastasize, and we asked the, the AI, the machine learning algorithm, to tell us what was different about the tumors that metastasized versus the tumors that didn't metastasize. And that's how we came up with gene expression profiling, which uses only 15 different genes, and actually three of the genes are what we call control genes. So they're expressed at the same level, whether the cell is cancerous or normal, or a pancreas cell, or a you know eye cell, or a um, you know liver cell. So those are the control genes. Then we have 12 discriminant genes, which are expressed at either higher or lower levels in the cancer cells uh, that were included in this analysis. And what we asked the um, you know machine learning algorithm to do was to kind of um, divide those um, uh, those uh, tumors up into the ones that metastasized and the ones that didn't metastasize and figure out what was different about their gene expression profile. So you can see here how uh, the algorithm kind of found the uh, differences between the class one tumors and the class two tumors in the gene expression profile. Um, so what does this mean? If you have a class one tumor, generally speaking, you have a much lower risk of metastasis, and if you have a class two gene expression profile, you have a higher risk of metastasis. And just to put some you know, rough numbers on this, the class two uh, tumors are associated with the highest risk of metastasis, and again, this is old data based on larger tumors than um, you know, a lot of us uh, had when we were treated. Um, but 70% uh, five-year risk of metastasis in the class two tumors, approximately a 30% risk of metastasis in the 1B tumors, and a less than 5% risk in the class 1A tumors. So again, how does this um, uh, gene expression profile evolve as the tumor evolves? We start off with an, a normal melanocyte or a choroidal nevus, which has a class 1A gene expression profile, which is the normal cellular program that a melanocyte should be, um, you know, operating under. And that can evolve into a melanoma, which may maintain a class 1A gene expression profile, or evolve into a more deranged or abnormal gene expression profile, such as class 1B, which is pretty similar to class 1A, but a little bit, you know, funky, 
or a class two gene expression profile, which is completely funky. You know, all the genes are, you know, going in different directions than they are. Uh, the, the gene expression is sort of going up when it should be down and uh, down when it should be up. So um, that's how we are really defining this line in the sand between class one and class two. Um, so generally speaking, gene expression profiling and NGS provide complementary information about metastatic risk. So if you have a low-risk gene expression profile like class 1A, you're very likely to have a low-risk mutation on your NGS, such as EIF1AX, again with the medium-risk tumors, uh, class 1B, often associated with SF3B1 mutations, and the high-risk or class 2 gene expression profile is usually associated with a BAP1 mutation. Um, so again, this is just showing us that evolutionary landscape where we're going from the nevus to either the low-grade class 1A melanoma with an EIF1AX mutation or a medium-grade 1B melanoma with the SF3B1 mutation or the high-grade class 2 melanoma with the BAP1 mutation. In cases where there's a discrepancy between the gene expression profile and the NGS, whereas some of um, you in the audience may have had both gene expression profiling and chromosomal profiling, I would say the, the best thing is to uh, assume the worst case scenario, which is that the highest higher risk feature uh, overrides. So this patient who had a, a class 1A gene expression profile, but um, I identified a BAP1 mutation, uh, I would recommend uh, that she have high-intensity metastatic surveillance and definitive treatment, you know, with plaque uh, brachytherapy or nucleation for this tumor. So what is PRAIM? PRAIM is sort of um, uh, a new uh, concept. It stands for preferentially expressed antigen in melanoma. It's, um, it was originally identified in cutaneous melanoma. It's what's called a cancer testis antigen. So it is um, something that's not normally expressed in the eye or really in any tissues except for cancer cells and for some reason in the testis. So there are a number of um, cancer genes that kind of fall, or cancer um, uh, antigens that fall into this category. Um, it's not a genetic mutation, so this is um, you know, important to recognize. This is sort of a, a gene expression profile unto itself. It's, uh, it's a protein that, when it's upregulated, affects the transcription of many other proteins. So it changes the cellular program um, when PRAIM is expressed in the cell. It is measured by gene expression profiling, but it was not included on that original 15-gene panel that um, uh, uh, determines whether you're class 1 or class 2. So the PRAIM expression provides independent information from what we get from the gene expression profile. It's not, you know, redundant with that information. Um, the bad news about PRAIM is that it has been associated with a poor prognosis in multiple cancer types. So here are some survival uh, curves looking at renal cancer and head and neck cancer. Um, we are currently doing a uh, large multicenter prospective study called the COOG-2 in which we're evaluating uh, the role of PRAIM in uh, prognosis in uveal melanoma. Um, but I can tell you from looking at the preliminary data, which isn't published yet, that there is a pretty consistent signal across the board that PRAIM increases the risk of metastasis at all levels of gene expression profile. So if you have a class 1A tumor that's PRAIM positive, you have an increased risk relative to a class 1A tumor that's PRAIM negative. 
Similarly, with class 1B prime positive and class 2 prime positive, there's an incremental risk on top of the underlying risk um, that comes from the gene expression profile. So the good news about PRAIM is that it, um, it seems to increase the recognition of cancer cells by cytolytic T cells, which are the cells that actually kill cancer cells when your immune system recognizes the cancer. And uveal melanoma is, is um, notoriously difficult to treat with immunotherapy, but it seems that PRAIM-positive tumors may actually be more responsive to immunotherapy than PRAIM-negative tumors. So, there is, you know, maybe a silver lining that PRAIM expression may um, increase your responsiveness to immunotherapy, and maybe we'll have PRAIM-directed immunotherapies in the future that help us um, more directly target a metastatic melanoma that is PRAIM-positive. So again, thank you for your attention, and uh, I don't know if we have other presentations or we can go to uh, questions from the audience. I think, I think we're good to go to questions from the audience. Yeah, I actually do have a good number of questions, so uh, I'm gonna hang out here if that's okay with you guys. Makes it easier, I can see you because my one eye can see you all. It's great. So thank you guys, everyone who's brought in questions. Um, you guys are doing a really good job with bringing these questions and getting specific. Um, if, if I do have more questions, uh, we probably have maybe five to 10 minutes so we can cover some questions. Um, so this is kind of a true or false question. Uh, it says, currently, there's no way to find the genetic mutations, really like all of them, BAP1, PRAIM, any of these mutations you discussed. Um, there's no way to find them from other blood tests, like, like a direct body blood test to find them ahead of time before they metastasize. Is that true or false? False, but okay. we're not there yet. Okay. So, uh, so the answer is we're working on it, okay, but, uh, but we're not there yet, and so... We are making do with what we have, which is the which is the tissue from the tumor. Okay, so that was my other question here: is that is the prime evaluation that we're discussing right here, right now, only for the eye tumor primary biopsy, or is it also evaluated at the time of liver metastasis? Or do you guys not know that? I just am curious. Uh, that's a great question. I'm not aware of um, commercially available PRAIM testing for metastatic lesions. Okay, so this is very specific to just the ocular. Obviously, you guys are ophthalmologists. That right, is very but specific. the the um, those patients with metastatic disease in this in this room are probably very aware of um, uh, the very regular use of PRAIM testing on liver tissue. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. Um, at the time of liver biopsy, it's very common to do PRAIM testing on that tissue. Sometimes it actually differs from, from the primary tumor. The reason that may be is because the um, metastatic liver tissue seems to protect itself pretty well from, uh, from PRAIM testing once it's already spread. So, so the answer is it's available in both. What we're talking about right now is only eye stuff. Okay, perfect. Um, so then this one says, can you explain the clinical um, value, let's see, actually, I'm gonna read this again and I'm gonna come back and decide if I'm gonna read it out loud, so hold on. Um, are there any current studies that are geared specifically toward the, uh, the, one, the class 1A? Um, like clinical trials that are, I think you guys talked about the R, obviously the R of treatment as an option, but I, I think this question is maybe talking more about studies for the metastatic spread, and, and that one, you guys let me know if we need to defer that to Dr. Moser and Dr. McKean. I think, you know, the, they want to do these trials. It's a rare disease. There's not a lot of patients, so most of the trials that I'm aware of have been focusing on the high-risk patients that we know are statistically more likely to develop 
metastatic disease, and in those, you need fewer patients to determine whether or not your intervention is going to mm -hmm. work. So I think the answer is no to that 1A question. As far as, I, as far as I know, that's correct. If you happen to be a 1A patient who's developed um, a metastasis, um, there are clinical trials that are probably available to you just by the fact that you have a metastasis, not because your okay, tumor that, was Okay, that's a good clarifying question. Not, not because your tumor was 1A. Uh, at the, the original tumor was 1A. Okay. Uh, let's see. So are there, are there any studies being done for those who have not been diagnosed yet? So somebody who just has a lot of flashes of light but doesn't have a tumor that's been specifically found? Like, is there any correlation between, oh, you have like lots of flashes, that means you're going to develop a tumor soon? This is a theoretical question, I know. Yeah, so flashes and floaters are, are common symptoms from a multitude of retinal conditions. Um, but... Uh, Choroidal melanoma is an extraordinarily rare cause of uh, flashes and floaters in the grand scheme of things. So if you are having flashes and floaters, you should be evaluated by an ophthalmologist or preferably a retina specialist, but um, you probably are not at risk of uh, uveal melanoma on the basis of that symptom alone. Okay, I think that covers that. This is a little bit of a backtrack to the previous session, I think. Um, I think this was more kind of from Dr. Hovland's session and what he talked about, but it just says, do you use a slotted plaque for tumors touching the optic nerve, and what is the recurrence rate of primary OM when slotted plaque is used? So basically that gap, you know, where some part of the tumor maybe is not treated directly. I think the shields have shown that uh, deeply notched plaque is pretty effective for uh, tumors involving the optic nerve. Oh, I do use those. Um, but I would put my data at the anecdotal level, uh, meaning it's not real science or statistics. Uh, you know, I would say a lot of it, the plaque, you know, you read these studies, well, there's this kind of local recurrence with this treatment, protons, for example, or with the plaques. But uh, honestly, I think ultrasound guidance uh, for a while wasn't, not everyone used it. And I think without that, you're going to have 20% failure rates we've seen published. So I don't I use it. Huh? I don't use ultrasound guard. What? Yeah. No, I think the I think there is a there's a skill level to whoever's doing the procedure, and it takes a lot of practice. And uh, so I, I think we try and extrapolate from studies, but the reality comes down to the actual practitioner, I suppose, uh, and the skill at which the, these techniques are applied. But I think a slotted plaque has generally is a reasonable approach, and has a, a reasonable chance of success. All right. Well, I feel like we are down to the end of what we can accept for questions just for time to be respectful of everybody's time here. But thank you again to you guys. Do you have anything you want to cover to wrap up this presentation before we go into the end of the day? Uh, no. I mean, if there are no further questions, we, we do have some comments to make yes. uh, to say goodbye. But um, Yes, we're going to cover those in just a sec if you just give, a us, sec. give us just a minute. We have a script. It's fun. All right. So... Um, Okay, can we pull up our slides then from the ACIS presentation? Um, we're back to the Tricellar slide. Um, I do need to just take a moment, because we haven't been able to credit them yet, to thank another of our partner sponsors, Tricellus Life Sciences. And they are an interventional in immunotherapy company on a mission to improve the lives of patients living with liver and pancreatic cancers by dramatically transforming the way these diseases are treated. So we're grateful to them for their support. Next slide. Um, our next 
seminar. If you have not already heard, if you haven't heard it kind of floating around, we are planning to head to Seattle next year. And we're going to be there with the uh, Dr. Stacy and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance in the fall of 2023. Next slide. Thank you again to our presenting castle um, presenting sponsor, Castle Biosciences. If you guys haven't met Kat yet, she's over here in the back. Can you wave, Kat? She's over here. We're so grateful to Castle. This literally would not have happened without them. Um, so we are incredibly grateful for their support and for them being here as well. Castle, are, they're, they're a huge wealth of resources, and they're very open to talking with patients and giving you guys as much support as you need. So make sure to chat with her. Make sure you have a good way to um, connect. And just again, thank you, Tennessee Retina, Dr. Reichstein, for all of the things that you guys have done to help us get ready to be here, all of the support you've given us today. Um, so Dr. Reichstein, um, I think, let's see, I'm scrolling down. This is your turn. And if you need the script, let me know. Uh, I have a script with me. <laughs> all right, you're good. Um, so thank yous uh, come actually on multiple levels. Um, obviously, uh, thank you to the ACIS board, Melody, Lauren, Suzanne, Marlene, Jack, Danae, Julie, and Hannah. Uh, thanks go out to our production team, uh, the WMV Productions, in particular Nick, Philip, and Samantha. Uh, our, our production team today, that's Paige and Maddie. Uh, a lot of thanks goes to the team at Tennessee Retina. Um, Anderson Brock, Dina, Joanna, Holly, uh, Andrea, um, for not just uh, being here and part of the oncology team, but also taking care of Monica, my daughter today. Um, to our photographer, uh, Jern Hermestra. Um, and uh, an unbelievable amount of thanks um, goes to um, Castle, Aura, Immunocor, Delcath, Trisolus, Foghorn, and Replimune um, for allowing us um, to be here. I would love to give um, my heartfelt thanks to Dr. Scott Walter and Dr. Peter Hoagland, um, who have uh, been here um, as my uh, compatriots in putting a lot of these talks together. Thank you very, very much. Sincere thank you um, to uh, Dr. Meredith McKean and Dr. Justin Moser uh, for their time and outstanding talks this morning. Uh, very sincere thanks to Dr. Terry Watson uh, for sharing his experience over on track two, uh, to uh, Dr. John Pino for talking about low vision. Who else am I forgetting? Um, Joanna Morales. Yes. With, uh, uh, triage cancer and Ann Osborne. And Ann Osborne for, um, for her amazing story and for providing us all with our um, fantastic books. Oh, Dr. And, and Dr. Dr. Afshar for um, all of uh, that work yesterday. And really, thank you so much for spending your time uh, with us today. Um, I think you can see that um, we gain as much ins inspiration out of treating you as I hope you get inspiration out of being treated. This is really our life's work, and the fact that we get to um, share it in a positive way and come together means a whole lot for us as doctors. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoy uh, the dinner tonight and for being here. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences 
please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.